Good morning, everyone. There's nothing like nothing like a few Canaanite tribes tribes to uh, throw the teens readings out. They did a very good job. Thanks, guys, for uh, those that long reading. There was a peasant in Russia in the 1700s called, and I'll use my best accent here, Fyodor Vasilev. Now, Fyodor, according to the Guinness Book of Records, uh, with his wife had 69 children, 69 children, 16 sets of twins, 7 sets of triplets and 4 sets of quadruplets. Quadruplets. (laughs) No, I don't think so. Now, of course, there are some who doubt the truth of the record, but um, let's suppose for a moment the story is true about Fyodor. Imagine the nappies. Imagine the clean-up after dinner. Imagine when they all got sick at the same time. Through all the chronic sleep deprivation and hard work, do you think that Fyodor actually knew his children? I suspect he probably struggled just to get their names right let alone their favourite colour, let alone their individual hopes, struggles and needs. I wonder if any of us here sometimes feel like God is a bit like Fyodor Vasilev. I mean, God has so many children, so much to occupy his attention, so much to keep him busy. Can he really relate intimately to me and to you as individuals? I remember when I was uh, 18 or so, my church youth group leaders' uh, marriage was on the rocks. Um, their relationship had had some things in it that, that uh, it shouldn't have. They were in, in trouble. I prayed for them every day for weeks, for months. In the end, their marriage broke up. I was left wondering, maybe I wasn't praying loud enough, maybe... I wasn't praying faithfully. Maybe my righteousness wasn't enough to get my prayer heard. Of course, that's not true uh, of, of God and of prayer. But I wonder if, like me, sometimes you've prayed a lot about something but it felt like your prayer was falling on deaf ears. Maybe you felt like you weren't important enough to make it to the top of the queue. Or perhaps you're struggling to experience an intimate relationship with God. Even right now as we speak, uh, you're feeling a bit distant from him. You're feeling a bit disconnected. Of course, the truth is God is nothing like Theodore. God is without limits in knowledge, power or energy and he knows and loves each of his children perfectly. In fact, far better than we even know ourselves. Sometimes though, what we know in our head about God is harder to believe in our hearts. It's in our experience that truth about God in our emotions. So I hope our study this morning uh, in Exodus 2 can speak both to our heads but also to our hearts. This passage here in Exodus uh, 3 and 4 um, shows us that God's personal in many ways, both in a group sense in this case to the nation of Israel, uh, as well as an individual sense, in this case to a man called Moses who is uh, roaming the back of the desert looking after his father-in-law's sheep. So I want to just give you three ways this passage shows us that God is personal this morning. The first way 
uh, is that God feels his people's pain. If you turn back to the end of chapter 2, and Josh spoke to us on chapter 2 recently. If you look right at the end of chapter 2, we read this in verse 23. While Moses was off in the desert, during that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and was and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. At the end of chapter 2, we see that uh, the oppression that Pharaoh is inflicting on the people uh, hasn't gone unnoticed. It says there that God remembered his covenant and this, this word remembered to us sounds like oh, maybe God had forgotten for 400 years. But it's equally translated um, was mindful of. So at the end of this long period of, of suffering, um, God is mindful of his people. The time is drawing near uh, for God to fulfil his promises to Abraham. The enslavement of Abraham's descendants, the nation of Israel, was foretold by God to Abraham hundreds of years earlier. Uh, but I suspect there were some in the nation who believed that God had completely abandoned or forgotten them. But the reality was that everything was coming to pass just as God had said it would. But this is not just God ticking the box on an old promise. Um, if you look at verse 7, I'll read bits and pieces um, from verse 7 about, and just look at the language that is used to describe uh, God's response. It says, I have seen the misery of my people. I've heard them crying out. I'm concerned about their suffering. I've come down to rescue them, to bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. The cry of the Israelites has reached me and I've seen the way the Egyptians oppressing them, are oppressing them. So yes, God keeps his promises and uh, his deliverance of the people out of Egypt is um, fundamentally keeping his promise but he's also filled with compassion and concern for his people. He's not just some aloof being watching from the sidelines, uh, maybe with a yawn, No, God is intimately acquainted with the suffering of his people. And it appears to me that the nation of Israel wasn't very faithful to God in Egypt. Sure, when Pharaoh starts killing all the baby boys, then they finally wake up to their need for God and deliverance and start crying out to God. But they've barely cleared the borders of Egypt before they're groaning and complaining and asking to go straight back. Were they longing for the promised land? I think for the majority of them the answer is no, they weren't. Did they long to follow and worship God? I think for the majority of them the answer was no. But here God acts out of who he is, acts out of his compassion, acts to fulfil his promises to Abraham, the personal promises he had made to Abraham, not because they deserve deliverance but because God is compassionate and a promise-keeping God. I think when we're in the middle of difficulty, um, most of you, I uh, think, will have felt enslaved by sin or by temptation at some stage. When our circumstances around us have, have gone pear-shaped, whether our fault or not, God is not distant or disinterested. 
God is compassionate. He feels our pain. He understands our weakness. When my youth group leaders were, uh, their marriage was breaking up and I was in pain over that, God was in infinitely more pain over that situation. He saw the subtleties of all the pain in that more than I could ever understand. And in the end, uh, God was sovereign enough to allow them to make their own choices and live with the consequences. God sees our problems. Uh, He's a personal God. God hears our cries to him. And in Jesus, ultimately God came down uh, in a rescue mission to save us from our deepest slavery, the slavery to sin. And so this is our first point from this passage about how we see God as personal. God feels his people's pain. He's a God of empathy. Secondly, um, God is a people person. God is about to send Moses here uh, against the military superpower of the ancient world. Um, Egypt, known for their chariots, known for their chariot archers, their war elephants, their um, massive siege ballistas and cannons and battering rams. One man, Moses, a shepherd. But God doesn't introduce himself uh, to Moses as the God of lightning or the God of war. Look with me at how God reveals himself to Moses in verses 4 and 6. He calls Moses by name, Moses, Moses, in verse 4. Verse 6, he says, I am the God of your father that father that hid Moses in the basket in faith and trust in God when he was a baby. I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So God is fundamentally relational. Here he addresses himself as the God of individual people. He's the God who ties to the promises that he's made to his people. You'd say, well, is this the best way God could have introduced himself to to Moses as he's about to send him on this, uh, what seems like an impossible quest? But it demonstrates to us that God is relational. And as we move further into the passage, God actually reveals himself more personally than he ever has before in the Bible to this point. If you turn with me to Exodus chapter 6 briefly, reading at the start of chapter 6 verse 2 God said to Moses I am the Lord and the Hebrew behind that capital O, capital O, capital L-O-R-D is Yahweh I am Yahweh I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob as God Almighty but by my name Yahweh I did not make myself fully known to them And down in verse 6, Therefore say to the Israelites, I am Yahweh and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgement. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. And uh, for us as English speakers, I 
feel this, the, the concept of Yahweh is quite hard for us. Um, I'll probably spend a few hours trying to get my head around all this uh, Hebrew language and Yahweh and so on associated with this passage and sort of went down all sorts of uh, windy little paths and got nowhere. But um, I did find some helpful things as well. And uh, back in chapter 3, so in chapter 6, uh, God says, actually I'm revealing myself to you in a way that I never actually revealed myself to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. Um, the word Yahweh, it's always translated in your English Bibles uh, typically as capital letters, uh, Lord, um, but in the, in the original Hebrew it doesn't have vowels which makes it quite hard to pronounce and so some people have added some vowels in and called it Jehovah um, but Yahweh is a, is a way we can pronounce it. And Yahweh is uh, God's name. It's like my name's Robert. Um, Yahweh is God's name, his, his proper noun. And so it actually occurs over 6,000 times uh, in your Bible. And I think, unfortunately, it's translated Lord in your English Bible because it robs it of its meaning uh, and obscures it as not just a generic name, you know, Lord and Master, but as actually the revealed name of God. So what are we to take from Yahweh? Well, if we turn back to chapter 3, God gives us uh, what was here, um, fresh revelation to Moses about his name. Now in the Hebrew um, Yahweh is essentially four letters without vowels. It's, it's equivalent to a, a Y, a H, um, a W and a H. And uh, it's very similar to the Hebrew word for I am. Uh, they come from the same root and, and sound very similar. Not identical. But when God reveals, Moses actually asks him, what is uh, what shall I tell the people about who sent me? What is your name? God said, and then we're up in verse 14, um, Moses says, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to the say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the Lord, in your English, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. And uh, the Jewish people um, treat this name Yahweh with such reverence that they actually, um, an Orthodox Jew will refuse to speak it refused to try and um, pronounce it. And that tradition sort of came into the translators as well when they were um, translating Yahweh and so they've used the Lord um, even though that it's, that's not its direct interpretation or translation. Uh, but as I study this passage, the more I see it and the more I understand that Yahweh and I am are inseparable. Uh, so God wants us to know him as I am, the great I am we, we sometimes say. 
So what is this I am about? What's the what's some of the concepts about it? So I am obviously a statement of existence. For God, uh, a statement of his self-existence. In the eternity before time began, before space began, God existed. From that time until the end of eternity, which doesn't have an end, uh, he's still the unchangeable I am. Nothing ever influences him and causes him to change. Entirely self-existent, self-consistent, no source, no beginning, no end. So what does I am mean to an enslaved nation? How will it encourage them? How will it speak to them? God also says, tell them I am who I am has sent you or this can be translated, I will be who I will be. In the context of their slavery, Yahweh or I am reminds them of the one who existed before time the one who formed and sustains the whole creation by his infinite power. Is a little dust mite called Pharaoh going to be an issue to God's plan of salvation? No. He could stack tens of thousands of chariots like Egypt had, but you're dealing with the great I am. It also reminds them that God will be who he will be. Who he was to Abraham, a covenant making, promise keeping God who brought a child to Abraham at the end of his years is the same God who said to Abraham your people will be slaves in a foreign land and I will bring them up and I will punish the nation that enslaves them. This is the great I am. He's not going to be affected by Pharaoh. And of course when we come to the New Testament Jesus in John 8.58 is dialoguing with the Pharisees and he says this to them Before Abraham was I am. They pick up stones, they want to kill him because Jesus is claiming to be the great I am. And in doing so, he took up all the majestic truth of the name Yahweh, wrapped it in the humility of servanthood, offered himself to atone for all our rebellion and made a way for us to see the glory of God without fear. I'll say that again. When Jesus took I am for himself and for his name, he took up all the majestic truth of the name Yahweh wrapped it in the humility of servanthood, offered himself to atone for our rebellion and made a way for us to see the glory of God without fear. God is a people person and in the name I am we see that. We see his uh, promises to the nation of Israel to us. We see in the person of Christ um, and his sacrifice on our behalf that God is very personal. So finally, um, my third point is that God works through real people. Uh, And one of the most powerful evidences to me that God is a personal God 
is the fact that he chooses to use weak and imperfect people to accomplish his plans. The direct dialogue between the angel of the Lord and Moses in these chapters is so personal. Uh, It takes the majority of these two chapters. Find somewhere else in the Old Testament where this one-on-one dialogue goes on for so long. And before we um, jump into a little bit more about God's interaction with Moses here, I just want to give a brief overview of Moses' life. So obviously his parents trusted God and defied Pharaoh by protecting Moses as a baby. Uh, He's initially raised by his own mother uh, but lived most of his first 40 years in the royal courts of Pharaoh, treated like a son of uh, Pharaoh's daughter. During this time he was educated in all the knowledge and wisdom of the Egyptians, um, top citizen and Acts 7 records that he was powerful in speech and action at that time. But at the age of 40 he decides to finally visit his own people, the Hebrews in Goshen, uh, sees one being mistreated, which we read about last week, spontaneously just murders the guy, um, tries to bury him, goes, oops, um, and then he has to flee to Midian because Pharaoh is uh, trying to take his life. He then spends these 40 years as this obscure desert shepherd uh, before the burning bush account that we're looking at today. After the escape from Egypt, of course, uh, we're probably more familiar with the Moses um, post-Exodus. He leads the people through the, the Red Sea uh, with his staff um, parting the waters by the power of God. He receives the law from angels on Mount Sinai after spending 40 days without any food or water in God's presence. Comes down, he's glowing so brightly that it hurts the people's eyes. They can't look on Moses because of the radiance of God's glory coming off him. And there's some remarkable statements about Moses. Numbers chapter 12, we find Moses' brother and sister Aaron and Miriam uh, basically saying, look, contesting Moses' leadership. Does God only speak through Moses? And Moses obviously writes Numbers 12 and he writes, Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. Later on in Numbers 12 verse 6, he says, when there are, and this is God speaking, When there are prophets of the Lord among you, I reveal myself to them in visions, I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? And it says God's anger burned against Aaron and Miriam. So Moses in these later years, it just seems to be completely at odds with what we're seeing at the burning bush. He's a changed man uh, compared to the man that's standing at a distance from this burning bush. See, at the burning bush, I see a broken man. Uh, at 40, Moses is convinced that he's going to be used by God to rescue the people from Egypt. And um, we see that in Acts 7. But he tried in his own strength, in his own wisdom, uh, and it was a disaster. That failure hit him really hard, I believe especially the rejection by his own people. He felt he was their deliverer. They said, who made you ruler and judge? Get lost. Pushed him aside. But the 40 years of isolation and loneliness really humbled him, I think, 
and knocked out his self-confidence, his pride. He went from being Egyptian nobility to desert nobody. As we read this morning, when God speaks to him at the burning bush, he's full of excuses. Uh, God says, I'll be with you. He says, just completely ignores it, but what if they don't listen? But, 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 and he's full of these excuses. Finally, he runs out of excuses and he says, pardon your servant, Lord, please just send somebody else. Uh, And we find that God is angry at his continual um, rejection of uh, God's command to him to go to Egypt. And I don't know about you, but as we study the um, burning bush account, and to me it's um, arguably Moses that is most vulnerable, his weakest, his least confident, I find it very encouraging. Um, This is not mature Moses. This is not Moses' face glowing um, so that no one could see him. This is not um, Moses, the leader of a nation of three million. But it is in a sense. If you look at the first 80 years of Moses' life, you'd have to say they're somewhat wasted and unfruitful. At least that's what it looks like on the surface. But God hasn't given up on Moses. God perseveres with Moses. God takes Moses, uh, works in Moses, reveals himself to Moses and helps him grow into the Moses we can see with the benefit of hindsight. And like Moses, I question whether I can be useful to God given how flawed and inadequate I feel at times. And possibly you do too. But the same God that perseveres in Moses who calls Moses who teaches and shapes and grows Moses and uses Moses for incredible things is at work in us too. Do you believe that God wants to use you personally for remarkable things? Could you be a Moses? Could you be someone that shakes and changes this world in incredible ways? The answer is yes, absolutely, from the Bible. God is a personal God to each one of us individually. He is the same great I am that he was to Moses. He hasn't changed since Exodus chapter 3. He remains exactly the same as he was to Moses. A personal God, a God who despite our blabbering and excuses and weakness and past failures can take us and use us for remarkable things. Uh, Today's our teen service. I'd say especially to the teens in your youth, never believe that God does not want to use you for something remarkable. Don't get sucked into just being apathetic by the sidelines, going through the motions. Pursue God. He can actually do remarkable things with you and he wants to do remarkable things with you. This account shows to me without question that God is a very personal God and that he perseveres with, works with, works through, works in real people just like us. I've been meditating a lot on the life of Moses as I've been writing this message and um, I just as a final thought want to ask the question, what makes the difference between deep intimacy with God 
or distance from God. What makes a difference with Moses as he's just wandering around the wilderness and I, and I believe that God used that time really to shape him. Some of us, if we spend 40 years in the wilderness, might not leave us with too many years in the bank but sometimes we're afraid of those wilderness times. Sometimes we're afraid of being alone with God, being alone by ourselves without music, without our distractions, without entertainment, without friends, without family. But I think the key thing for Moses that led to his transformation, uh, a humble and broken spirit, I think he was so empty, so broken, so uh, devoid of self-confidence at the burning bush that God could use him. God could take him confidently to Egypt and say, Moses isn't going to take the the glory for this because Moses has told me he has absolutely nothing to offer but I'm going to take my power and put it in this weak man and show my glory to the whole world as I deliver my people from the military superpower of Egypt. So a humble broken in spirit. And the second thing I would, uh, uh, would observe from the, the life of Moses is time spent in the presence of God. To me the more Moses is off in the tent of meeting, the more he's encountering, looking at, understanding the glory of God, he just goes from strength to strength. Is he still the same flawed, weak human being underneath? Yeah, sure he is. But the older he gets, the more he lets God's power, God's strength, God's glory just be reflected out through him. And I pray that it would be the case for all of us, not just for me as I... uh, seek to mature in my faith but for all of you as well. That we could uh, find and yearn for uh, a humble and broken spirit, humility and that we could make time uh, to be in the presence of God in his word, studying it, praying with him, finding him to be the personal, promise-keeping, loving, compassionate God that he reveals himself to us as in Exodus 3 and 4. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for what you revealed uh, to us this morning through Exodus 3 and 4. You are Yahweh. I am the the great self-existing creator and sustainer of the universe. And yet you also reveal yourself as a God who loves and cares for and works with individuals, each one of us personally, Father. You're not like Fyodor Vasilev who had so many children he didn't know what to do, but you are a God with infinite power, infinite energy, infinite love. You're never time-strapped. never in a situation where you don't know our needs, don't know our struggles, don't know our shame or weakness, don't know our victories. Father, you know all, you see all. Lord, I just pray this morning that we can know you more deeply. Help us believe, Father, that you can do remarkable things through us and beyond believing, help help us to be willing, to be humble, to be obedient to what you have for each one of us, Lord, so that we can do the remarkable things you've planned for us in advance. We worship you as Yahweh, Father, the great I Am, 
the one who always keeps his promises. You have promised that Jesus will return for those who love him and take us into glory. We know your promise will be true. That will come to pass. But until it does, Father, help us to know you more intimately, more deeply. If there are things that are getting in the way of that, Lord, if there are barriers, if there's sin, if there's distraction, help help each one of us address that. So that as Moses spent time in the presence of you, Father, and grew and matured in wisdom, in love, in humility, help us also, Lord, as we spend time with you to grow in our faith. And we ask this in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.